Today's passage sits in a great context, a great story of the Old Testament. The commemoration of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, what we commonly call the Passover. For 1,450 years, Israel celebrated this story. It was part of the fabric of their annual worship. It told the story of their slavery, of their suffering, and of God's deliverance. If I have a big idea for you this morning, it's this. The symbols point to a Savior. The symbols point to a Savior. The symbols have always pointed to a Savior. And in that day and age, in the first Passover and Exodus, you remember the story. In haste, make your bread. Nine plagues have happened. A greater plague is coming. Sacrifice your lamb. Take the blood. Mark the doorposts with the blood of the Lamb. Hence we get the name Passover, that the death angel who was coming to kill the firstborn of all families would not kill the firstborn of those who had the blood on the doorposts, but the angel would pass over. Our story today grows out of that story. Our text comes from that narrative. And the symbols still point to a Savior. It's with that backdrop that Jesus in the upper room, celebrating this feast with his disciples, begins something new. Have you ever noticed that some verses don't have any context? Do you know what I mean by context? We talk about that. We mean sometimes the, uh, the verses that are around a particular passage or the passage, the whole Bible, or the setting that the passage is given in. In our day and age, we have plaques. And sometimes we hang plaques on the wall with a verse on it. And those tend to have no context. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, without any context, that sounds like a pretty great deal, doesn't it? I can do all things, and perhaps you've known people who uh, haven't maybe gone fully into the prosperity gospel with that verse, but have found themselves disappointed because they thought they could literally do all things. The context helps us understand that verse. We've seen that not just in Philippians, but we've seen it here in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians um, 10, verse 13, where we hear that no temptation takes you but what is common to man, and God is faithful and will with temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to stand up under it, get through it. We quote that as a purely positive passage. We learned in the context that it has a little bit of a negative bent to it. Well, our passage this morning is so familiar to us. We read the middle of our passage every month as though it is a very, very positive, easygoing, for I received from the Lord what I gave to you, that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said to you, this is my body. It just sounds so normal and lovely and teaching. But what we just read didn't sound like that, did it? And so it's important for us to take this teaching in the context. 
Paul turns to the failures. The failures of the gathered church when they come together in Corinth to take the Lord's Supper. It's in contrast to the intent of Jesus' design to celebrate the way that Jesus gave himself for others. What we see on display in these verses is the selfish behaviors of Christians gathered together not living out the gospel. And so, in fact, they are not celebrating the gospel. They are spiritually not partaking of the Lord's Supper. This, I've said two thought, one big thought here, the symbols point to a Savior. The contrast that we will see in this message today is the contrast between selflessness and selfishness. And that's what we should pick up today. Paul calls them to live out selflessness, the selflessness of Jesus as they come together to celebrate the Lord's death. And if they won't do it that way, twice Paul suggests that they just stay home. In fact, Brian asked me, what's your sermon title? And when I said, I always give him three fakes and then a real one sometimes. And one of them was, stay home. Instead, I decided to, to name my sermon together, come together. Because in the same way that Pastor Brian's message last week, who had thought heaven coverings was a message about gender norms on its face value, and I don't think we understand that the message about the Corinthians and communion is a message about unity. Don't be divided. Come together. Stay together. Those who don't listen to Paul's words, are said not to be approved. We will have to address that this morning. Paul takes seriously and judges the behavior of the Corinthians, rehearses for them what Jesus did for them, and through his judgment he seeks to discipline them and restore them that they also might proclaim the Lord's death again until Jesus comes back. Now, a little bit of context here, because you may be struggling with some of this before we go to the text. The early church celebrated the Lord's Supper in the context of an actual meal. Now, wouldn't that have been nice this morning to have some good spaghetti or something before we came to the Lord's Supper? A little early for that. We need some biscuits and gravy. Uh, but a common way that's explained in this passage is that the wealthy and Christian, Corinthian Christians would start eating the meal before the poor and the slaves would arrive. And as a consequence, they would leave little food for those who came late. We see in the text, and we will look at it again, I'm just summarizing here and trying to get us on the same page before we start looking at it verse by verse, that the social elites, the rich, the haves, consume their own private little dinners and don't share with the others. You see, you may not understand. You're like, what, Pastor Trey, uh, how would you get drunk? It said that some of them were drunk, but we only pass out a little tiny cup of juice. You see, the, the feast of the communion table that they partook in came as a consequence after having a meal together. What was commonly called a love feast or an agape feast. In other words, some brought their own food and didn't share with those who had no food to bring. It sounds like a church potluck, right? Where the single guys bring a bag of chips and eat all the good stuff. All right? And they don't even touch their own chips. Learn a lesson. I did that. That's not right. 
But when the Corinthian church comes to gather and celebrate the Lord's Supper, they usually met at someone's home. There were no formal buildings. They would eat an actual meal that began with the breaking of bread, move to the meal, and ends with drinking wine from the cup, symbolizing Jesus' body and blood in his death, burial, and resurrection. The church would likely meet at the home of somebody relatively wealthy to have enough room, a wealthy Christian. Um, the architecture of the Greek and Greek Greco-Roman homes in Corinth suggests that there was a special dining room. In my study, I learned that it was called the triclinium. And the lower class would eat in the courtyard outside what was called the atrium. Paul does not like this division. He does not like the schism of the elite feasting in their own little private room in the triclinium instead of sharing with those who are out in the foyer or the atrium, thus leaving them hungry. Paul actually describes those people in verse 22 as those who have nothing. The haves and the have-nots. So one of the lessons today is the way that rich church members celebrate the Lord's Supper in their way, and that day, in like a private dinner, contradict what the Lord's Supper symbolizes. I said it's about unity, namely... That we are, listen to this, I found this phrase in my study, we are a unified loaf. (laughs) We are one big loaf of bread. In fact, if we were to just go a little further back, and that is because of the gospel to 1 Corinthians 10 verses 16 and 17, Paul was speaking rhetorically and said, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's only one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of one bread. The way the Corinthian elites mistreat the fellow church members denies the gospel. They don't share their food. They selfishly seek to... How would I say this? They... They selfishly seek to superimpose the ordinance and celebration of communion onto their faulty behavior and call it the Lord's Supper. Again, we see selfishness instead of selflessness. So all of that leads us to our first point this morning. It's so many verses in such a short amount of time that I am also going to kind of just ask some questions of the text thematically. We're going to go through it chronologically. We're also going to, I hope this goes well, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in the middle of my message today. We'll have our common practice. We will sing songs. We will distribute. It will not feel very different. But as it comes up in the text, that's when we'll celebrate together. Question one, what's the problem? What's the problem? Well, the obvious answer, it's been the answer since the beginning. They're carnal. They're babies. And it manifests itself in divisions and schisms in the church. Do you remember all the way back in chapters 1, 2, and 3? I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow Paulus. I follow Christ. Divisions. They've not agreed on much. What an unbelievable statement that Paul makes. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Can you imagine if it could be said of Heather Hills Baptist Church that when we get together, we do more harm than good? It's sad. What he describes them of, I do not commend you. 
It's, it, it, is, it is a striking statement. When the church gathers, what should happen? Members are to edify one another. We're supposed to build one another up. We're supposed to stir one another to love and good deeds. We're supposed to encourage one another all the more as we see the day of Christ approaching. A church member should be better off because of meeting with the church. But the way the Corinthians celebrated the Lord's Supper, Paul says, left them worse off. How in the world does that happen? Well, a couple of things seem to come out in the text. Paul begins to address it already. For in the first place, when you come together, as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it, in part, allowing that not everybody's a part of this, I think. And in verse 19, he makes a statement about divisions that seems not to fit in the context And I think it's Paul's sarcasm on full display. Well, there must be divisions among you in order that those who are genuine among you can be recognized. There's some big words in here. There must be divisions, Paul? What do you mean by that? We, we, We have to have divisions? No. But when there are divisions, it is an opportunity for all of us to come down on God's side of the problem. If I'm having a disagreement with Brian, it really doesn't matter whether I'm right or Brian's right, fundamentally in our minds. It matters who is right. It matters if God is right. God is the source of truth. God is the source of right and wrong. When there are divisions among you, it is an opportunity for those who are genuine, those who are approved, those who are right, to be recognized. Divisions and problems give us all a chance to side with God, not against each other. They had lost track of this. They didn't understand the principle. And so, verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. The rich are not sharing with the poor, I don't have a lot of time this morning to spend on this, and the point of the message um, is not primarily that rich people should care for poor people. But you probably know that God's concern for the poor, for widows, for orphans is great. In addition to that, our caring for the poor is a mark of piety, as a mark of our real righteousness, and the oppression of the poor is a mark of wickedness. Those are big themes in the Old Testament. God cares deeply how people treat people, and specifically about people treating one another in an unjust way. The abuses have reached an unbelievable level. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. Do you understand uh, the nearsightedness, the myopic nature of how we can sometimes function as Christians and think everything is fine when everything is not fine? There's some spiritual blindness here. And, and, and actually what they've done is disconnect their physical relationships and their physical practices from the spiritual realities. Look at what he says in verse 20. Again, his sarcasm is on full display. When you come together, that's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. 
Don't put Jesus' name on that. That's not the Lord's Supper. They are lost. It reminds me of Samson. You know the story of Samson in the Old Testament? He gave a false answer about the secret of his strength. And then he got up and won the battle and gave another false answer about the secret of his strength and got up and won the battle. And then he gave the real answer. And he thought, I will wake up and shake myself off as I always have. And one of the most understated verses in all the Bible, one of the saddest verses in all the Bible, the Bible speaks of Samson and says, but Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. It's very similar here. These people are going through the practices. They're exercising the procedures. They're using the right language. And they are not spiritual at all. And what do they get in verse, the second half of verse 22? They get a clear rebuke. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? What's the answer? No. You come together, it's worse than better. This is the first time when Paul implies this time. He doesn't say stay home, but he kind of implies it. Don't you have a house at home? It would be better if you didn't come together, if it's for the worse. These questions rebuke them for the actions that have been described. For treating the church with contempt by devouring their own private meals and not sharing. He cannot commend the Corinthians. He repeats verse 17, I do not commend you. Boy, does that change the whole flavor of the passage? Does that change the whole way in which we receive this teaching? I hope it does. I hope that it draws a contrast and reminds us of what the specific things that Paul is correcting at this time. I want to invite the praise team back to the platform and invite the leadership team uh, to come forward here as we move to our second point. This is where we'll begin to uh, the portion of the scripture that's going to sound or the portion of the sermon is going to sound a little more familiar. So the second section and the question I want to answer is why does it matter? Why does it matter? And this is where we get our significant doctrinal portion of the sermon in, the, in, in today's text. And verse 23 begins with a connecting word, the word for. And that's why it's so important. And when we read this passage on a regular first Sunday of the month, and it begins with the word for, I would hope that all of us kind of were like, well, it has something to do with something else. We're not talking about it today, but it's there. So this word for is used in great contrast. Paul reminds the Corinthians of the traditions, the doctrine that has been given to them. He had received this from the Lord and had passed it on to them, and they have failed to maintain it. The reason, the for, that Paul cannot commend the church is because they are, the way they're abusing the Lord's Supper is the complete opposite of what the Lord himself announced the Lord's Supper is supposed to symbolize. It's often been said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's all flat. No one is worthy. No Christian is inherently better than one another in essence. 
Prosperity in this life is no indication of that whatsoever. So how, rhetorically asked, can a Christian celebrate Jesus' cross work in a way that marginalizes and snubs other Christians? Can't be done. Well, why does it matter? These are the thoughts. There's one death. There's two pictures. There is regular remembrance. And there's an eternal perspective. And that's what we'll talk about here in this little section. Jesus would have broken this unleavened bread. Let me read this passage just so it's fresh in our mind. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You've heard this passage again and again and again. Hopefully today in a little unhurried fashion. Jesus would have broken the unleavened bread served at the Passover meal. It would have alluded to Exodus chapter 12. Paul has already described the unleavened bread and referred to Jesus as our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5. I'm sure you remember that. I don't. I was on sabbatical. This implies that Paul understood Jesus' words at the Last Supper to mean that Jesus was fulfilling the role of the sacrificial lamb in the establishment of the new covenant. There's no ambiguity here. Jesus' death fulfilled forever the implications of the Passover. Anyone bring a lamb this morning? We take it for granted. 1,450 years of sacrifice, whether daily, weekly, or at least annually, you were engaged in blood sacrifice once for all. Two pictures. This is my body. The cup is the new covenant. Professing Christians have understood Jesus' words in different ways. Roman Catholics have understood that the bread and wine are repeated sacrifices that actually become Jesus' actual body and blood and convey sacramental grace. It's not our understanding of the text. Um, neither is Jesus present in and amongst, literally, the elements that are in front of us, as some Lutherans believe. The symbols point to a Savior. The bread and the wine symbolize Jesus' death. This is the most natural way to understand Jesus' statements. When he said, I am the door, it was a metaphor. When he said, I am the bread of life, it was a metaphor. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it was a metaphor. Jesus' statements parallel each other. It's fitting for the first statement to be symbolic. The second is symbolic. The bread representing his body, the wine, his, the, 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 the cup, the wine, his blood. Jesus twice says to celebrate the supper in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is a precious memorial to remind people of Jesus' sacrificial death. But friends, I think when we're in a hurried fashion on a regular once-a-month routine here, 
we do a really good job of saying, hey, it's not giving you grace. It's not special means of grace. And that's not untrue. But friends, this is the memorial. This is the time when we stop and meditate on the cross, which is the fundamental giver of grace. And so I think sometimes we communicate almost a trivialization, unintentionally, of this ordinance. I believe it does convey sanctifying grace to Christians who lovingly, willingly, and, and um, spiritually connect to the truth of the cross through the symbols. In the same way that you could do it at home in one sense, when God's Spirit ministers the gospel to your heart through your Bible reading, or in your car through a song, when the gospel becomes alive in your heart and you find grace. But here, together, collectively, around these elements, it is never more real than now in God's mind. Do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say, go home, open your Bible, and find the grace that way, though you can. He didn't say be in your car and sing and find the grace that way, though you can. I'm not, um, I'm not demeaning those things in any way. I'm trying to bring special attention to this moment, which he did say, do this in remembrance of me. When we eat and drink in faith together, Jesus is here with us because we are one big loaf. It's extra meaningful because we are together. Men, if you'll come, and we'll distribute the bread. Deuteronomy 16, verse 3, calls the unleavened bread the bread of affliction, referring to the sufferings of Jesus, referring to the sufferings of Israel. Jesus, in saying that the bread represents his body, which is for you, makes it refer to the redemption that he is about to accomplish for your forgiveness by his suffering in a broken body. Pastor Greg, if you'd pray for the distribution of the bread, please. We're so far removed from the Jewish context, it's sometimes hard to keep all of this straight in our minds. You remember Randy's call to worship, uh, he read from the Gospel of Luke, speaking of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was the feast. And during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they ate the Passover meal. Does that make sense? Well, understanding that helps you think about what Jesus is speaking of here when he speaks of the bread of affliction from Deuteronomy chapter 16. It's the exodus in such view. Hurry, no time. It's time to be delivered. Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection accomplishes for us a spiritual exodus that, as the book of Hebrews says, is far superior. This is the real exodus. Not just Israel out of Egypt, but humanity out of sin. Praise the Lord. Let's eat together. Here that Jesus makes that's not as obvious to Americans, but was very obvious to first century hearers. When Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, he borrows language from two different Old Testament passages. 
Exodus 24, 8, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you speaks of the Mosaic covenant and the establishment of that at Mount Sinai. But the idea of the new covenant comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, where God has promised to be in great blessing and community with all people, with his people forever. It reminds us of God's promise to establish a new covenant in a future time of restoration. Jesus brings these two texts together and he makes it clear that his impending death is the sacrifice that establishes the new covenant associated with that second exodus that we just spoke about. This covenant language is so robust. We know the agreement God made with Adam. We know the agreement God made with Noah. Agreement, covenant, same word. We know the agreement that God made with Moses and the agreement God made with David, all pointing. Remember what I said? The symbols point to a Savior. And when Jesus here in the upper room says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And it shall no longer be necessary for one another to teach one's neighbor or his brother and to say, You should know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. And I will forgive their sins, and I will not remember them any longer. Amen. Let's drink together. Isn't it interesting that Jeremiah wrote that they would all know me from the greatest to the least, and here in the Corinthian passage we have a juxtaposition, we have a contrast and a schism between the haves and the have-nots. Well, we've looked at one death, two symbols, a regular remembrance. The celebration of the Passover in the Old Testament was a call to a focused reflection on the Exodus redemption. It was around a meal, specific elements. We sometimes at my house have celebrated the Passover with our family just to understand the Old Testament better, not in a worship sense, but in an academic sense. Jesus now reflects on the redemption he's about to accomplish and he interprets those two elements of the traditional Passover meal, the bread and the wine, and that now they communicate the message of redemption that Jesus brings. Regular remembrance. Regular remembrance. We choose to do that here at Heather Hills monthly. I don't think you could argue in any church structure to do it less than once a year. Uh, based on the, the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. I think monthly strikes a nice balance. Do you know that the early church did it weekly? I don't know if you know that or not. 
a regular remembrance, why we are prone to forget. And last thing I observe in this text about, and the big point was, why is it important? What is the teaching? And that's an eternal perspective. At the end of the passage, Paul says, do you see what he said in verse 34, the last part, about the other things? I'll give you some directions when I get there. Sounds like dad's coming home, right? I don't know if you ever noticed this in Paul's letters, but as we've been reading them in our community Bible readings, we've noticed Paul is always threatening to go somewhere. <laughs> hey, you shape up, I'm coming. Well, that may be a little bit of encouragement, but it stands in contrast to the end of verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What a nice little contrast there. Paul may be saying, I will come. I don't know if Paul ever made it back to Corinth. I know he wrote another letter. I'm not sure off the top of my head if he did. But I know Jesus is coming. And an eternal perspective. In order for us to truly celebrate the Lord's Supper, we have to take very seriously that it is a celebration of the new covenant redemption brought about by Christ's self-sacrificial death. If we are using and partaking of communion in a way about sacrifice and selflessness rather than selfishness, this will require a change in the way that we treat one another. Especially required a change, Paul said, for the way the Corinthians would treat one another. If we eat the bread and drink the cup to remember the work of Jesus on the cross, because this act of eating and drinking is a way to proclaim the gospel until Jesus returns, then this opportunity together is not just for this moment, but it reveals and calls out the most glorious story that has ever been told. And it should build us up and give us a great courage to share our faith with unbelievers. Third thought, well, what are are the applications? What do we do about this? We have this huge problem, and we have this great teaching. Verses 27 to 32. This gets to the part of the passage that speaks of examining ourselves before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Boy, there's an awful lot here. This is one of those places where context brings a great deal of clarity, and it's important for us to understand it. We try to practice this. In the parlance of pastoral uh, training, many call this the fencing of the table. That there's a little fence around it. And that uh, it is responsible for Christian leaders to educate people about the fence. It's not our fence. It's God's fence. Who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Well, on the basis of pure spirituality and an understanding of the doctrine, we commonly declare to people 
that this celebration of these remembrances should only be taken by sincere believers in Jesus. On its face, that makes very great sense, doesn't it? Why would you participate in the symbols if you don't believe in the Savior? Does it mean anything else? Well, we often give a moment to pause because the Scripture says, let a person examine himself then and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup because, and this is read carelessly sometimes, because we don't want to participate in the Lord's Supper, the text says, in an unworthy manner. I think some read this carelessly and say unworthily. That might mean participating in the Lord's Supper hypocritically. But friends, can I ask you a deep and sincere and probing question? Are you worthy? You are not, are you? Have you ever been worthy? In and of yourself, no. Can you ever make yourself worthy? No. It's important that we don't think of it that way because it puts the focus on us. The Lord's Supper celebrates the gospel. Christians must participate in a worthy manner. Do it the right way. In this context, now let me back up. In a general sense, I do not think that the text precludes us from pausing for a moment before we take communion and just examining our hearts to make sure that we are not harboring unconfessed sin against the Lord. As your pastor, I would also be quick to say, if you do that for 31 seconds, one time a month, you are in trouble. If that were the only time. Now, is it a good time? Yes. I don't think it's, the text precludes it. What's the context, though, of the unworthy manner? And if I'm going to faithfully declare this text this morning, as I feel it says... How hypocritical for us to take the symbols that point to a Savior, a Savior who is selfless, and in one sense to participate in them selfishly through the eating and drinking poorly around a love feast. We have no opportunity for abuse there whatsoever. We don't have a love feast. But friends, we are one loaf. And the thing that I think Paul has in mind very, very strongly here is divisions in the body. Fractures. Unrest. Frustration. Critical spirits. When we come to the Lord's table, the specific unworthy manner that is in view is people who would be alienated from one another in the body because of self-righteous perspectives and would not be brought through the gospel to a place of the unmerciful servant 
who would say, I have been forgiven such a great debt. How can I harbor against a brother anything and be burdened to make those things right before we would eat and drink in an unworthy manner? Examine yourself. Are you right with one another is probably the strongest admonition in the context for what Paul means when he says examine and then eat and drink of the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body, without thinking about the body, this is the whole point of the passage, that some are eating, some are drinking, some are hungry, some have extra, some are drunk. That you're not looking at one another. You would just take this superficially. The passage about judgment is strident. There's a commentator, Hugenberger, points out that Paul's threat that whoever eats and drinks unworthily will eat and drink judgment upon himself reflects the nature of the Lord's Supper as a covenant ratifying, new covenant, right? This is the new covenant. Covenants have signs. This is the sign of the new covenant implying a self-cursing symbolism such that our infidelity deserves the same dreadful curse which overtook Christ, whose death is symbolized in the elements. This is consistent with Paul's depiction in chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, of the judgment that fell on the Israelites as a result of their infidelity to God's covenant just a chapter ago. And so in contrast, Christians would not experience God's judgment if they examined themselves by discerning the body. I love that God makes a distinction here for believers that we receive the discipline of a father, not the judgment of a judge. And we're running out of time, so I have to move forward and finish up. What should we do? Last question. So what should we do going forward? Well, we're supposed to share with one another the idea of selflessness over selfishness. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Come together, wait together, love together, participate together. You see, it's a passage about unity. It's a passage about togetherness. If anyone is hungry, we're going to use that as a metaphor for selfish. (laughs) If anyone is broken, it'd be better to stay home, Paul says in this setting, because when you come together, remember the beginning of the sermon, you do more harm than good. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. That's the solution. Well, I invite the praise team back to the platform. We'll finish with a final song. The old covenant is replaced with the new covenant. This is a much better covenant. The symbols point to the Savior. I'll leave you with six quick thoughts. I promise they're just bullet points. I found them in my study. When a church celebrates the Lord's Supper, a Christian should look in six different directions. Just give these to you real quickly. Look inside. Examine whether you have a sinful relationship with a fellow church member. I'd like to think that there's just no sin in your heart that you're harboring against the Lord. But maybe at this time you would be very specific and say, hey, is there anybody at church I need to just continue to work hard to build bridges and to love. I can't be broken. Number two, look back. 
Look back in time. Think about Jesus. Think about what he did on the cross. Revel in what he did. Let the gospel wash your heart. Number three, look up. Celebrate your union with Christ. Celebrate that you are one with Christ, that he is yours and you are his. Number four, look around. Celebrate your union with one another. I love you. I appreciate so much your fellowship with me at Heather Hills. I know I can call people and find hope and help. Many of you may not know I'm serving as a corporate chaplain now on Wednesday mornings for a local company here, and I've discovered already people don't have church. And the church takes it for granted. We are blessed. Look around. Number five, look outward. Proclaim the gospel to everyone you can. They need it. Proclaim it to those who are here. Proclaim it everywhere you go. And number six, look forward. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming, and it's going to be great. And let it encourage your heart. Father, put your word deep in our hearts, I pray, and grow a harvest of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.